Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. So, Nikki, we are entering the apocalypse. Oh, boy, are we. (laughs) Our own personal apocalypse. (laughs) But before we dive into Revelation 6 this week, I just want to remind you all that we would love for you to rate and review our podcast wherever you listen to it. If you can write a review somewhere, um, it does help to spread the reach of the podcast and cause it to grow. Um, We also invite you to come to our website, proclamationmagazine.com, and sign up for our weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday morning with new materials and links to all of our online material. You can also use the donate button there, and we do continue to need people who come alongside us and support us through prayer and through donations. And one last thing, every Tuesday evening at 6 o'clock Pacific time on YouTube, we have a live premiere of the week's podcast, and you can come on and join in the conversation and listen for the first time with others who are listening for the first time and converse together if you want to do that. So... That being said, I want to now turn to Revelation 6, which is where we are, Nikki. And I want to ask you, when you were an Adventist, as you thought about these four strange horses and horsemen, and souls under the altar, and devastating events on earth, where did you see yourself in all of this? What did you think about these events, and where were you? So first of all, um, most of my time in Adventism, I had never read the book of Revelation. They were just stories that I'd heard. This is what Ah. it's going to be like. This is what's going to happen. And I heard about the people hiding in the mountains Mm -hmm. and trying to hide from the wrath of God. And that was where I pictured myself, hiding from the wrath of God. At the same time, from the time I was very young, I remember picturing myself arrested and tortured to give up the Sabbath. So I Mm kind of had both pictures going. I shared that um, in my 20s, I did sit and read the book of Revelation, and I was pretty shook by the end of that. And I definitely saw myself here on earth enduring all of God's wrath and all of the wrath of unbelievers. I I thought it was all going to come down on me. Yeah, somehow we were the inheritors of it all. Yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way. And I had exactly the same images in my head. I'd be hiding in the mountains, (laughs) and I would also be being arrested and forced and persecuted to give up the Sabbath. Plus, I had this vision in my head from Ellen White that I would be going through this time of trouble without a mediator. The Holy Spirit would be withdrawn. My fate was sealed at the end of the investigative judgment without any assurance from God of whether I was a saved or a lost person. I would just be thrown to the heretics, so to speak, and the game would be on. Would they be able to get me to give up the Sabbath or not? Wow. And it was terrifying. So everything bad that could happen in the last days was happening to us. Absolutely. (laughs) According to how we recall it. And weren't we lucky? We the remnant. Oh, I just didn't want to be here for that because I knew I was going to fail. I did too. I knew myself. I can't withstand torture. You know, once in a while, I would look in the book of Revelation, and I found it extremely confusing. I was taught somewhere along the line that Revelation is not sequential, and that it kind of jumps around between history and the future and the present, and 
you know, I was so confused about it, I didn't know how to read it. Mm-hmm. Except for the proof text of, here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I'm going, yep, Sabbath all the way. Yeah. And Laodicea. And Laodicea, yes, and Mark of the Beast. Yeah. Wherever we- the Adventists thought they were, that's where they'd go and read in the book. But we didn't read it cover to cover. No. And you know what's really interesting to me is that those three angels of Revelation 14 were far more significant to me and my worldview as an Adventist than were any of these other things going on. Including the throne room and the lamb. Exactly. That never dawned on me. In fact, just this week, we had a really interesting comment on the premiere of the podcast for this week, which was over Revelation 5, and somebody said... Isn't it interesting that Adventist evangelism features all the beasties from Daniel and from Revelation 13, all the horrifying, terrifying beasts, but never is the lamb with the seven horns and the seven eyes standing in the throne of God. Is that ever mentioned in Adventist evangelism? The lamb is missing. I bet it will be now. (laughs) Just give it a little bit of time. They'll they'll do it. (laughs) That's a very good point. Well, we are starting Revelation 6, and before we read it, Nikki, why don't we just talk through a little bit about what's going on in this chapter and why it's significant, and I think we're going to do this because what I discovered this week in studying for this was that I had a lot of tangle in my brain that's still left from Adventism. And one of the most important things that filtered up to the surface as I was studying is that once again, there's an issue with worldview. Now, we've talked a lot about our hermeneutic, like read what's here, taking the normal meanings of words, normal rules of vocabulary, and that's what's guided us in this. But what I'm seeing is that when I remember that the church is something completely different from Israel, that something brand new was started on the day of Pentecost, that people who believe in the finished work of Christ are born again, given a new heart and a new spirit, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's a new thing that didn't happen in Israel. Mm -hmm. Sealed with the Holy Spirit is a brand new thing. So, we are a new body. So, to read Revelation and to get mixed up with who's being talked about is a confusion. And as an Adventist, I believed I was, you know, the replacement Israel. And so, all of this was for me and of course, I was not part of the body of Christ because I wasn't born again, but I didn't understand that. So, getting it clear who's the church and who's not the church is really helpful. And the other thing is, I just got a little bit of help from J. Vernon McGee, who kind of outlined what's going on here. And this was really helpful to clarify. He pointed out that in Revelation 1, and we talked about this, um, when John was first given his first vision, he was told that he would be shown the things that were, that are, and that are to come. What was, what is, and what is to come. And McGee pointed out that the what was, was what John saw in the first chapter of Revelation. He saw the resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ on the basis of his finished work, his work of atonement and resurrection. Then what is, were the letters to the churches, which still apply to the churches today. And what is to come is essentially the rest of the book, the prophetic part that 
hasn't happened yet. What we see here in chapter 6 is the Lamb opening the seven seals of the scroll that he has taken from the one on the throne because he is the only one with the authority to do so. So from here on out in the book of Revelation, the events that we're going to read about and study have not happened yet. Now, does this remind you of anything we did in Daniel? (laughs) Yeah, well, I was just going to say, trying to understand Revelation without reading Daniel is it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. I had described Daniel as creating a bridge from the Old Testament over to Revelation. And this really makes so much more sense to me now because in Daniel 9, you have this description of things that we can understand by looking at human history. And then there's this moment that doesn't make sense. It hasn't happened yet, right? And it's right. during and after this gap, and it goes all the way until the end of things. Right. And then we get some description of what's going to go on. I believe that we read about this in the first three chapters of Revelation. Right. Then that we church age. The, in the gap. church age, absolutely. Uh-huh. And then we have the throne room. And we have Jesus taking the scroll in chapter 5. And this scroll has the seven seals, which are the judgments that we're going to see unfold in the rest of the book. And based on Daniel and the way that this unfolds throughout the rest of the book, it seems to me that everything that happens from Revelation 6 on happens after the church age. That's what it looks like to me too. Because before Revelation Four, we can see in history all of the things that were written about. Yeah. But once you get to four and onward, there's nothing historical. And I know there are those who say that there are, but there's nothing historical right. that correlates with what comes in the rest of the letter. I agree. And the rest of the letter from six on, and, and beginning with four, actually, which is showing us what's in heaven. Yeah. But the events that are described on earth from mm-hmm. six on... There's no historical event that describes them. Plus, we see in Daniel 11, if anybody remembers when we went through that, the first 35 verses of Daniel were filled with kind of vague-sounding prophecies. But if you look at history, every single one of them has a fulfillment, has names of conquerors attached, has names of nations attached. Those first 35 verses have been completely fulfilled. From verses 36 to 45 in Daniel 11, those have no historical counterpart. And it's kind of like what we're seeing here from Revelation 6 onward is going to describe the judgments of God that are going to result in those prophecies in Daniel being fulfilled sometime in the future from where we stand right now. Mm-hmm. So, understanding that has helped me a lot. Understanding that I am now part of the church, which was a brand new thing that came into being on the day of Pentecost, and that it is not a continuation of Israel, but it is a new thing. The church is new, yet there is a connection with God's people of the Old Testament. There's a definite connection. And if you look forward to the end of Revelation, you'll see that connection becoming united in the holy city, where the foundation of the holy city has the names of the 12 apostles and the doors are 
gates into the holy city have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So yes, in the end, everything is combined and God's people are one body, but we are separate now. And that has helped me so much. And it's very consistent with the historical grammatical hermeneutic. And I just want to say, we realize that there are people listening who don't use that hermeneutic for prophecy. True believers who don't see it the way we see it. And we expect that. But yeah. but we are going to give a case for this perspective based on how we approach scripture. And we don't break fellowship with those who see it a different way. True believers are true believers in Jesus Christ and his finished work. There are brothers and sisters, and we would never part company with them. And I just want to say that. And I just want to say another thing, too. One of the criticisms that we hear over and over is, oh, you ladies are just teaching dispensationalism. And I want to say, <laughs> uh, no, I haven't actually really studied dispensationalism. I am using a hermeneutic that is the way I read scripture using the normal rules of grammar, vocabulary, and context, just like I would read Shakespeare or a book of science. And that's the way I read the Bible. And when I do, it kind of makes sense. In a way, it has never made sense to me before. And I can put myself in my proper place in the church. So, when we look at this chapter, we're going to see those famous four horsemen of the apocalypse Adventism never called him that, and it's kind of a funny name, but you know, when we look at it now, they're not obscure. Those first four seals of the scroll that Jesus the Lamb is going to open are going to describe effects of judgments that are going to be on the earth. And this is the thing, through the rest of the book of Revelation, we will sometimes go from the perspective of being on earth, looking at what is happening on earth, to being taken to heaven, where John sees what is happening in heaven at a given time. But it doesn't seem to be out of chronology. It seems to be fairly chronological. We'll talk about that as we go. But we see the first four seals describing things happening on earth. We see the fifth seal describing something going on in heaven. In the sixth seal, we come back to earth and see some cataclysmic events as seen from earth. And then the seventh seal is the mysterious seal, which propels us into the next part of the judgments. It seems to be somewhat empty in terms of its own content, but when that seventh seal is opened, we're going to see the seven trumpet judgments come out of that seventh seal, and we'll go from there. Nikki, how about just reading chapter six? Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. 
When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Oh, Nikki, isn't that amazing that they hide from the wrath of the Lamb? Mm -hmm. You don't think of a lamb having wrath like that. No, and and to be honest with you, I never thought that they knew what was happening. Isn't that interesting? They know exactly what's happening. They do. And they know somehow that the one on the throne and the wrath of the lamb have shared wrath. That's right. They're together and it's one judgment coming out against them from eternal almighty sovereign God. Yeah, that's an amazing and terrifying thing actually. When we back up and start looking at this chapter verse by verse, there is something that we do need to acknowledge, and that is that there is a similarity and a connectedness between Jesus's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and this chapter of the seal judgments. There is a parallelism in there. Just in brief, I'll go through this and just state some of the parallels. There's like five First, in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, we have Jesus saying that there will be false Christs coming. And here, in verse 2 of chapter 6 of Revelation, we have the rider of the white horse, which is picturing religious deception and very possibly the Antichrist. So, back to Matthew 24, verse 6, we hear of wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. Then we go forward into the seal judgments, um, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6, and we have the red horse, the red horse of war and civil strife and killing one another. Then Matthew 24, verse 7, we have famines, earthquakes, the birth pains are picking up, the birth pains of what is to come. The seal judgments, we have verses 5 and 6, and we have the black horse of famine. And one thing that we have here in the seal judgments that is not listed in the Matthew list is in verses 7 and 8, where we have the pale horse of death, who will kill one quarter of the earth's population. That detail is not given in Matthew. 
Back to Matthew 24, verse 9, we have persecution and death and believers will be hated and all men will hate them for their belief in the Lord. And then we go forward to the seal judgments, verses 6 to 11 of Revelation 6, and we have martyred believers in heaven saying, how long, Lord, how long? So we see that the persecution and death mentioned in Matthew 24 really is resulting in people being martyred for their faith in Christ. And then in Matthew 24, verse 21, we have a mention of a great tribulation such as has never been. Then in the seal judgments of Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17, we have a description of the day of the wrath of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne, and that that day of wrath has come. So there is a parallelism between these. Now, Colleen, we've just expressed the fact that we believe that these seals are breaking open after the church is taken to be with the Lord. Yes. But you just read from Matthew 24, and in verse 34, Jesus says to the people who are listening to him talk about this, Mm -hmm. truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That is a very confusing verse for a lot of people. Because obviously the generation he was speaking to has passed away. Yes. So can you address that? Well, I certainly am not the last word on biblical languages and prophetic interpretation. But here's what I understand from this. First of all, I'm going to start with a note from the NASB Bible Study Notes, which is from Luke 21:32, but it's the parallel passage to Matthew 24 here. And this is what the study notes say. Generation, like this generation will not pass away until these things come to pass, might indicate the Jewish people as a nation who were promised existence to the very end. Or it might refer to a future generation alive at the beginning of these things. It does not mean that Jesus had a mistaken notion he was going to return immediately and then it didn't happen. Many scholars today agree that this generation in Matthew 24, 34 refers to the people who are alive at the time of the signs of the end that Jesus has described in this chapter in the Olivet Discourse. When these events begin to happen, which are parallel to these seals opening in Revelation 6, when these things begin to happen, the generation that is alive then will not pass away until they all come to an end in the great day of the Lord. In other words, it will be very fast. It will happen in the lifetimes of those who are alive when it begins, and it will come to an end not long after. I don't see this as saying the generation Jesus is talking to will not pass away. I see this as saying when these things happen, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. One of the things that I think is confusing about this for some people, and it was for me, is that the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus tells his disciples, he's looking at the temple and he says, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And then the disciples ask him privately, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? There's two different questions here. Great point. So, Jesus talks to them about both, and he does talk to them about pray that you're not in the city when this takes place. 
this is one of those things that I've come to understand is having um, multiple fulfillments, yes. but primarily he does answer the question of the temple being destroyed in AD 70. And then he goes on and answers the question of what it will be like at the end of the age. Right. And those are two different things. You know, I think we can even understand him saying this generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. If he's talking about two different events, one in AD 70 and one right before he comes, that's clearly people who are alive at two different times in history. But in each case, the people who were alive when those events began, those events were completed in their lifetimes. They happened fast. The destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the Jews happened fast. When Titus came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, that was over and done fast. And then at the end these things will be fast. And when we look at Revelation 6, and we see that this first seal opens up this white horse, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. If we understand that these seals are literally inaugurating the beginning of the tribulation, and not just describing things that have happened for the last 2,000 years, which is how I understood it as an Adventist. It's like, oh, yes, there was false religion for 2,000 years. Oh, yes, there's been war and rumors of wars. There have been all these things for, you know, 2,000 years. How do we know when anything actually is beginning? But if there is a beginning of a tribulation and it's marked by these seals, and you remember that throne room in heaven where people were weeping because who is qualified to take that scroll and judge the earth? Mm -hmm. That judging of the earth is going to happen at a moment in time. And I believe that that's what Revelation 6 is describing. If we think of it that way, Jesus is saying, when these things start to come to pass, that generation won't cease until this is done. So we can look and say, well, you know, we've had wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, all these things for 2,000 years. Well, clearly that's not what Jesus was talking about because many generations have come and gone in 2,000 years. So these events are talking about it situation, a point in time, which are still future for us. And we know from Daniel, the duration of that time is not going to be all that long. Right. It's apparently going to last about seven years, divided into two parts. And that was all kind of discussed in our Daniel podcast. You can go back and listen to those if you have any questions. And I do recommend that because I think Daniel is really helpful in understanding Revelation. As we begin this chapter, I want to just give us one little sentence quote from J. Vernon McGee, which was a really interesting comment. He says, the great tribulation comes in like a lamb, but it goes out like a lion. A promise of peace is the big lie the world is going to believe. And I think we will see that as we see these seals begin to open. So, Jesus is the lamb. He is standing in the throne, and he opens the first seal, and that's where we're going to begin. So, it's interesting that with this first seal, when John hears the voice say, come, he hears the voice like thunder, and out comes this first horse, and the other horses that come after him, they're consecutive, and they don't have that same thunder. It's as if these first seals are connected somehow. Mm -hmm. So, this first rider like you've mentioned, is wearing a crown, and he has a white horse, he has a bow in his hand, 
and he came out conquering into conquer. And it does sound like Christ, but there are some differences because Jesus wears many crowns. He doesn't just wear one. Jesus's weapon is described as a sword, not a bow. That's true. Jesus is not alone when he's pictured on his white horse. He comes with armies. And Jesus is the one summoning the writer here through the opening of the seal. He's opening the seal. A lot of people have come to understand this. I have been convinced that this writer is a false Christ. And I can see this being the Antichrist when I look at this in conjunction with Paul's words to the church in Thessalonians when he says that after the restrainer is removed, then the lawless one will appear. Right. So the restrainer being removed, we need to mention that because we haven't talked about it in this podcast. That's in Second Thessalonians. And what is it that you've come to understand that to mean? I believe that the restrainer is most likely the Holy Spirit indwelling the church. And yes. then when the church is removed and the restrainer is removed, then in a unique way, the Holy Spirit is removed and the Lord is going to pour out his judgment on the earth. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't omnipresent or that he won't be at work while he's here, but it will be in a different way. It won't be in the uniqueness of the indwelled church. That, again, comes back to what I said at the beginning, that we have to see the church as something new. That's not just a continuation of Israel or a similarity to Israel. God's Spirit has always been at work on the earth, even when he destroyed it with a flood, even when he judged Babel and dispersed people and messed up their languages so they couldn't destroy themselves and do all the evil they could think of. His judgments have always been accompanied by the presence of the Spirit on earth, who has always been at work bringing people to faith in His Word. Mm -hmm. So, the Holy Spirit isn't going to be gone, but the church was given a special job that nobody else has been given, and that is to be the bearer of the gospel of the Lord Jesus to the world, empowered by the literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believers in the body of Christ. That is something that has never been before the day of Pentecost, and when the Lord takes the church out of the world, the unique presence of the living body of Christ in the world Removing that will leave a void that we've come to understand as just common grace in the world. That will be different. And that's what it looks like to us is the signal for the Antichrist coming in. And when we see this seal opening with this white horse and the rider on it, you know, I learned as an Adventist that that was probably Jesus, I thought. But it didn't make sense, because if that's Jesus, then why is the next horse killing and war? And why is the next horse famine? This only makes sense if we see these seals as the judgments of God. Jesus coming in power and conquering power is not a judgment of God. It's a culmination. When I first started learning about this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, it sounded crazy. It really did. And I was programmed to believe it was crazy because of the Left Behind series and all of the comments that we got in Adventism and the fact that there are other Christians, true believers who don't see it that way. So I had a hard time seeing it. But now I would just encourage people to look at the events that are going on around any descriptions of Christ coming back. What is being described? What's going on in those details? In Thessalonians, which we just looked at, Paul 
tells believers that when the Lord returns, that people will be eating and drinking and marrying, and they'll believe that they're living in peace, and then a sudden destruction will come on them. When we look at Revelation and we get through the chapter to the end of the chapter today, we're going to see that by the time Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation, they know <laughs> he's yeah. coming. Yeah. They know what they've been enduring. They know that they're under the wrath of the lamb and they're hiding from him. They don't want him to come back. There's no surprise. There's no element of surprise with that coming. The element of surprise is in Thessalonians when he comes for the church. Right. So I'm not talking about a secret rapture, but there are details surrounding the comings of Christ that are different. And I do not believe that scripture contradicts itself. Yeah, I agree with you. I think those details are, for me, the thing that are the most convincing. I used to try to morph them into one event, because that's how I was taught to understand Revelation. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's all symbolic. We don't really know what it means. Um, We know that this chapter says, oh, that, that he'll come back in the clouds. And so we can just understand that this is a different description of the same event. But no, if every word is God breathed, if every word of scripture is useful for instruction and correction, and instruction in righteousness, then we have to know that these different descriptions mean something. And the events are different, like you said. Yes, look at the events. And on the first seal, we have this white horse. And you know, the very fact of an antichrist or a false Christ, we should not be surprised if he is coming in on a white horse, looking peaceful and conquering and and welcomed. Because he's imitating Jesus. He's trying to look like Jesus. So he comes in looking safe and like the answer. Mm-hmm. But what we find out starts to open up in the next seals. Well, yeah. And, and it's worth pointing out that when he comes on this white horse, he comes with a bow, but he has no arrows. Good point. So that could show that he has the appearance of being powerful, or it could also show that he comes in harmless. Yeah, that he really doesn't have the final authority that he's coming in pretending he has. Well, he comes in conquering and to conquer. And if you think back to Daniel, he makes a treaty with Israel. They decide to work together. So he doesn't begin immediately with all of the violence. That comes after he breaks that treaty. And it's interesting that the next horse, the second seal, is the horse of war. Exactly. So talk to us about the horse of war. So this horse was permitted, and again, let's just point out God's sovereignty in all of this. These horses, these seals, they are permitted or given. This is all at God's command. This is because Christ is opening the seals. So he was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword, which in scripture indicates power and authority. Mm Mm-hmm. It is interesting to me that this horse is the same color as the dragon in Revelation 12.3. Oh, that's interesting. And that dragon is Satan. And this is a red horse. Mm -hmm. An interesting idea that I derived from Gary Inrig in his teaching through chapter 6 of Revelation is that, you know, commonly this is called the horse of war, which I think is a fair label for it because he's given authority to take peace away from the earth with the implication being that that white horse had promised peace. He had come in as a conqueror, you know, welcomed with a crown. 
But the red horse takes peace away and people kill each other. But Gary had actually said that this could also represent civil strife where people in the streets literally turn on each other. It's not hard to imagine this when we think of places and times where there have been violent mobs in the streets that turned against their neighbors, that turned against the communities in which they were rioting or turned against one another. So either way or both, I think is a fair way to see this horse. He's bringing in slaughter, devastation, killing, and just a complete lack of respect for one another among the people. Well, and listen to what the Lord says to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 to 17. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it, and they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. This is the pattern of God's judgment to nations who reject him. He makes them mad and turn upon one another. You can look at also at Ezekiel 38 verse 21. So there's a precedent for yeah. this, and this is God's judgment. And again, these symbols that we're reading in Revelation, they are all rooted in the Old Testament. These are not brand new ideas with brand new symbols. This is showing the culmination of the prophecies of the Old Testament. It's really important to remember. It's helped me. So then we come to the third seal in verses 5 and 6. And what do we see when the lamb opens the third seal? So then we have a black horse and its rider has a pair of scales in his hands and he hears a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Now, isn't that interesting? So (laughs) how do people understand this black horse? What do they understand it to represent? Well, black is a color for mourning. It's Mm -hmm. a color for evil. And when the food supply is affected, we get famine. When you understand the cultural context here, you realize that a quart was only a day's worth of food. A quart of wheat was only a day's worth of food. Three quarts of barley was kind of the poor man's food. Mm -hmm. And a denarius was a day's wage. So you would work a day to eat a day. This is describing famine. However, he says, do not harm the oil and wine. And there are two dominant views that I found about this. So some say that this indicates the nature of the famine, because if you have a really heavy rain or a limited drought, neither of those situations would hurt the olive tree or the vineyard. Because their roots are so deep. Yeah. And then others say this indicates that the poor class will suffer, but the rich will be fine. So there's a greater uh, disparity between the classes that's Mm going to take shape. And it wouldn't surprise me if maybe both of those are true. Yeah. Because typically the oil and the wine were afforded only by the rich. They could only afford the grain. So either way, it might actually be both, that the oil and the wine will persist, that there will still be some food on the earth, but it will be harder and harder for the poor to have food. And then we come to the fourth seal in verses 7 and 8. And what's that? This is a pale horse, and some people describe it as a dappled horse. It's Mm -hmm. the picture of sickness. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. 
And what's Hades? Hades is the holding place for unbelieving dead. Which is a very macabre picture, actually. I don't know exactly how John saw this, but he saw death with Hades riding behind him. So they were given authority to kill over a fourth of the earth, which we have not yet seen. No. And they killed with sword and with famine and pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now that's really interesting because in the first three seals, we see the inauguration of famine. We see war. We see people killing each other. So we have sword here. We have famine here. That will be continuing and then we introduce pestilence, which is what? It's sickness, yeah. disease. Yeah. And that fourth one is particularly interesting, wild beasts of the earth. Well, why are we not seeing the population generally killed off by wild beasts of the earth now? Well, after the flood, God put the fear of man in the animals. See, I think that's so interesting. Once again... If we don't understand Genesis and God's work among his creation, beginning from the very start of things, we will have less understanding of what the end of the Bible really means. God made it so that animals were afraid of man, and he gave that fear of man to animals in Genesis 9. At the same time, he gave Noah meat to eat. He said, you may now eat anything that moves. And he also put the fear of man into the animals. So animals had a fighting chance, but man was also protected from the animals. And we still have enjoyed that protection, although, you know, I have to say, we do hear the occasional, sometimes even more frequent than it used to be, stories of wild animals breaching their natural habitat, coming into communities, and sometimes even killing people. Yeah, and that can often be attributed to a lack of food. You know, when you have a lot of fires in a place and there's not a lot of food, the animals will come down into the places where people are. And there are explanations for that sort of thing. And it could possibly be that these wild beasts are pushed toward humanity because of the famine. But what I see here is a reversal, in a sense, of the provision God promises the church. Yeah. Your bread and water will be sure, he says to the church. But here on earth is famine and a fourth of the people are going to die. And Paul tells us in Romans that the authority is given to the governments to support good and to punish evil. But here, the sword, the authority in the government is going to turn on mankind. That's what's really being said here. It's interesting that Ezekiel had a prophecy of similar things happening. God was warning through Ezekiel, God was warning Judah when he sent judgments against a nation that nothing could stop those judgments from happening. And in Ezekiel 14, 19 to 21, this is what God said through his prophet. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declared the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it. So this is not without precedent. This judgment that is going to come in the tribulation, in the seal, on the whole earth, because we see the lamb 
opening the seals of the scroll that is his right to judge the whole earth. These are the judgments that God poured out on Jerusalem in their apostasy, on Judah in Judah's apostasy. And it's the same judgments, famine, sword, wild beasts, and plague or pestilence. And he says, nothing can stop them if I do this. That's really overwhelming. I feel like we're delivering really bad news. I know. And yet God gave this book to John for the church, for the church to know. And I just want to say again, now is the time to believe. If you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus, this is the time because he has promised his church that he will take care of them, that our bread and water will be sure, that we're not to worry about what we eat, drink, or wear. All these things he knows we need, the Gentiles worry about that. So we are to trust the Lord Jesus and know that whatever happens, he has us, he's providing for us, he's taking care of us, and he won't necessarily let us know in advance how. But these are judgments that are coming on the unbelieving earth, not on his church. So we come again back to verses 9 to 11, and here we have the fifth seal. And our perspective changes here. What do we see here, Nikki? Well, we're back up in heaven, and John sees under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, when I read that, I thought, oh, wait a minute. I thought that the church was already up there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why are they souls and not raptured, resurrected church members? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But these are the souls of those who went through the tribulation. They're tribulation martyrs. Based on what I understand from Romans 9 to 11 and our work through Daniel and Revelation, I believe that the church is going to be taken before God's wrath is poured out on the earth. However, he is going to pursue Israel during this time. This is why we're going to see the 144,000 sealed. We're going to have two witnesses. There is going to be a proclamation of the good news. And during that time, people will come to faith and they will die for their witness. They will die for their testimony of Christ. And this is based not just on speculation or a couple of random verses. This is based also on a multitude of evidence from Old Testament prophecies, as well as what we will see as we continue through the book of Revelation. Yeah, and we can't cover that in one podcast right. each time we get to these verses, but we can encourage you to go and pursue answers. You don't have to agree with people who see it this way, but it is far better to understand how they get there than it is to throw straw men arguments yes. at them for landing there. It's good for us to understand each other. That's a very good point. So, Nikki, these slain souls under the altar, which of course has imagery that comes to mind of the Old Testament tabernacle, both the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense, both can be seen here. But the really big deal is, what's with these souls speaking to God? Well, apparently, we understand what's going on around us when we're with the Lord before we have our resurrected bodies. So, someone comes and challenges you about souls speaking, Nikki, about the dead (laughs) speaking to God. What would you say? Where would you take them to show that this is not just a metaphor of something that's not real? 
Well, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 5, we learn about the fact that when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And not only are we present with Him, we're not just there sleeping unconscious while He's looking after us. Makes me think of the matrix, you know, plugged into the chairs. (laughs) No, it actually says in verse 9, we aspire to please Him whether we are here in this body or away from it. How do you please the Lord if you're not in your body and if you don't exist? You know, this is saying that when we're dead, if we're believers, it's still our aim to please the Lord. We are not unconscious in death. And that is such a paradigm shift. It's really important. You know what, Nikki? This just tells me once more, when we read the words of Scripture, we need to understand that they mean what they say. Because if we try to explain them away, we get ourselves into a morass of confusion, and we find ourselves speculating. The words mean what the words say. Yeah, and and that was a central passage, but if you begin to trust the words, you're going to see them everywhere. Yeah. When Paul was talking to the church about when the Lord comes to take them, he actually says at the end of that section in chapter five, God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. He died for us so that, pay attention to this, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Yes. (laughs) And we don't live together with anyone if we don't exist in death. So it's interesting too, that these souls know that he has not yet avenged their death on earth. So they have some sense of what's going on on the earth. I'm not going to try to say, oh yeah, they're up there watching us. They know everything that's going on because that's not what this says. No, But it is interesting and we can't ignore it. That's true. So what is it that the Lord does for them when they ask him this question? Does He, he give them a time frame? No, actually. Well, no. He gives them a robe. (laughs) He he gives them a white robe and he tells them to rest a little longer. And I love what Gary said in his teaching on this section. He said that it's our privilege to rest. That's the privilege of the believers who are dead in Christ. It's our privilege to rest in Him. And he says that they need to wait a little longer until the full number of the martyrs comes in. There are more who are determined, decreed, to die for the sake of their gospel, of their message. Now, you know, this is a strange thing that the Bible is revealing to us, and we can't explain it. But the word about these souls is that they're slaughtered for their faith. It's the same word that's used to describe the lamb, slaughtered. And one thing I really was intrigued by and helped by was our Pastor Gary Enrig's explanation of this whole idea of the slaughter. He said, forgive me, I don't mean to be disrespectful or sacrilegious, but if he had merely had a heart attack, that would not be a salvific death. He said the salvific death of Jesus was that he was slaughtered, a willful, willing death to take the consequences of sin. It was a sacrifice. And he said, that same word is used of the martyrs. It is a willing, sacrificial death as people place their faith in the Lord Jesus and refuse to compromise with evil and 
Ultimately, there are many who will die for their faith. But the fact is that the Lord sees them and knows them. He's comforting them in their death. He's comforting them with a white robe, with the reassurance that they are righteous in His sight, that He is caring for them. He's reminding them to, as you pointed out, rest. And He's saying there are going to be more, and there's a full number, which means the Lord knows He's not unaware. He's not waiting until evil runs its course and shows the universe how bad it really is, like we were taught. No, he knows. There's nothing unknown to him, and he knows how many will be sacrificed for their faith. And that will happen, and then the Lord will finish vengeance on them. So then we get to the sixth seal. And this is where he sees a great earthquake. So now we're back down on earth. He sees a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Just full stop there for a moment. That hasn't happened. No, not in any way, shape, or form. Then... Verse 15, this is where it gets really interesting to me. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. And listen to what they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. They are not completely naive to what's going on. No, this is not a surprise to them. And this is not just a few people who've been reading the Bible and figuring out what's going on. This is everyone, the kings, the commanders, the businessmen, the poor men, everybody knows this is from the wrath of God. Yeah. And these are unbelievers. Mm -hmm. Now, as Adventists, we were taught that we would run to the hills and hide in the rocks. Nikki, What is the biblical pattern? Who hides in the rocks? Unbelievers, the ones who are to receive the wrath of God. It's never believers who hide in the rocks. It's never believers who want to hide or who ask for the rocks to hide them. When I think about how Ellen White taught us that we would do that, that we would run to the mountains, we would hide in them, I can only say, She was, whether she was fully conscious of it or not, revealing that the Adventist believers, if you want to call it that, believers in Adventism are not believers in Jesus. The believers in Jesus are not facing the wrath of the Lamb. Where are the believers in Jesus when this happens? I believe they're with him. I do too. This is describing what happens on the earth after the tribulation time reaches its culmination. And like you said, this is not like the description in 1 Thessalonians of what happens before the rapture of the church when we are resurrected and caught up together with those who have died in Christ and changed in the twinkling of an eye and forever we will be caught up with the Lord. This is not that. Because in 1 Thessalonians, it says that event will happen when people are just going on their merry way, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. This is all found in 1 Thessalonians 5. But this 
is not life as usual. This is life after a catastrophic earthquake, after cosmic events that completely change the nature of the sun, the moon, the stars. This hiding in the rocks is happening after the sky is opened like a scroll. And you say, well, is this just a metaphorical expression of something that we can't explain? And, you know, I want to say the end of Revelation 20, right before that final judgment, it says that heaven and earth disappear and the throne of God is visible and there's nothing that can stand in front of the throne of God. These people see God. And you were mentioning, Nikki, a New Testament reference to the same kind of thing. Yeah, the Lord allowed Stephen to see him. As he was being stoned, about mm-hmm. to die. So there are people who say this is just hyperbolic language. We don't know exactly what this is going to look like. I don't think we necessarily have to assume that they're not going to see the throne. How else are they going to say, hide us from the this so we don't have to see the one who sits on the throne or the lamb? Something will happen at the end of the tribulation where everyone will see who is pouring out the judgments and they will know they deserve the judgments. This is not the thief in the night. No. Uh-uh. Not at all. This is the conquering king coming. An interesting thing that we will discover as we walk through the rest of this time of judgment, as we see the seals opened, and then as we see the seventh seal revealing the trumpets, which then reveal the bulls, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls all end at the same place. They all end with the revelation of the coming king who will end the tribulation. So as we walk through these things, we can see that the trumpets are not necessarily just sequential events after the seals, but that they're showing us intensifying events as we move towards the completion of the tribulation. Same with the bulls, intensifying events, because all three of these sets of judgments end in the same place at the end with the coming of the Lamb. So Colleen... When Peter is speaking after the church receives the spirit, the church is born, he talks about Joel 2, and he talks about how some of that was fulfilled, but there's another fulfillment. Yes, I believe that's true. Um, In Acts 2, Peter quotes Joel 2 and says that this day this has been fulfilled in your sight. Now, here is the passage from Joel 2. Um, Joel 2, 2, and I'm going to also skip down to 30 to 32. And this is what Joel said. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. I will display the wonders in the sky and on the earth blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now we can see from that how much that is foreshadowing what we read here in the sixth seal. There were also aspects of that that were accomplished when Jesus died on the cross and rose that day he rose and the earthquake 
shattered the earth before his resurrection. And there were multiple fulfillments of those. The inauguration of the new covenant, of the completion of the old and the beginning of the new and the birth of the church, Joel is saying, these events have been fulfilled, but we also see that they have a far future fulfillment when that last day of the Lord comes. It's interesting. There's uh, other places where these things are referenced as well. Isaiah 2, 10 and 19. Isaiah says this, enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Nikki, that's what we're hearing these people cry for. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. That's what we see mm-hmm. here in the sixth seal. And in Matthew twenty four twenty nine, Jesus said, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, and he's talking in answer, what will be the sign of your coming? But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is the fulfillment of that. And we can see that the Bible lets us know that these things are coming and that when they come, we can know that it's the day of the Lord. So the people on the earth, when Jesus comes right before he comes back, when he's pouring out his judgments on the earth, the people who are still on the earth will see and believe that it is God coming, like you said. They'll call on the rocks and the mountains to hide them. People today say, well, I just can't believe all this because I don't have enough evidence. But what's interesting is that the Bible reveals it's not lack of evidence that causes unbelief. It's unrepentant hearts. It's an unwillingness to submit one's mind to the Word of God and to what He has actually revealed. They want to be saved from the wrath of the Lamb, but the Lamb rejected is the one who is the stone that is rejected that will crush them. So the events of this book of Revelation we believe, are best seen chronologically. John sees, just as the angel reveals things to him, what will happen next. And then, he says, so we can see them chronologically. John was told that he would see what was, what is, and what is to come. And the first vision in Revelation 1 is of the ascended and glorified Christ who received that glory in the past when he conquered death. Then the letters to the churches represent Now, what is now? We can read those letters and see Jesus' words to us still as the church. We can understand chapters 1 through 3 to be describing situations we already know, which are current for our time. Chapters 4 and 5 show us the throne room of heaven, and it shows us all of the beings in heaven worshiping the Lamb who was slain, the only one who is worthy to open the scroll breaking the seals, and beginning the final judgments on the earth. And chapter 6, we see these events beginning to happen, and they have not been fulfilled in any time in history to this date. So again, our hermeneutic determines how we read and understand, and John sees these things sequentially, so we're going to believe that that is how we're to read them. And as we end this chapter, I just want to say, If you have not believed in the Lamb 
who has conquered and who has died for your sin and was buried and rose on the third day, breaking the curse of death to save you from these judgments. We urge you to believe in him now. Admit your sin and ask him to be your savior and accept the life he gives you. Before we begin chapter 7, which talks about the 144,000, we're going to take a week to discuss what scripture says about who those people are. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Thank you.